You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, Redeemer family. And good morning to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. My name is Rick Bowers, and I have the joy of being one of your pastors here at Redeemer. And today we find ourselves uh, again in the book of Mark. This will actually be the last time we'll be in the book of Mark for the rest of this year. What we'll be starting up next week is a series called In the Storm. And during this series, during this time together and the several weeks we'll be in this series, we're going to be walking through some of the very real struggles that we face as human beings and how the gospel speaks into those struggles. And after we're done with that, we'll spend several weeks walking through some of the Proverbs that we find in Scripture, and then we'll end the year in the Advent season together, only to pick Mark up again in 2023. It's just a reminder that fall is already here. The year has gone by, I don't know about for you, but for me, very, very fast. Well, if you were here with us last week, you'll remember Pastor Josh uh, taught us that God does not call us to have a perfect faith. But he calls us to have an enduring faith and to place our faith in the only one who truly anchors us, and that's Christ Jesus. Well, the Gospel of Mark will continue on this week, and today the focus of Jesus has shifted to teaching his disciples. Now, it's true, he has taught them all along the way as they've been together and as they've journeyed and encountered different things, but today will be a little different. He'll be teaching them very pointedly, he'll be teaching them very intentionally a lesson in following his ways, and we're going to see that it's a lesson that's quite a contrast to the ways of the world. Well, if you're a parent in the room, as I am, you know that sometimes things get a little bit stressful in the life of your kiddos. Sometimes they will get themselves into a mess. Sometimes there will be external circumstances that come crashing into their lives and cause some sort of situation or ordeal. Sometimes they may fail at something really major. And it's in these moments where most of us as parents, we want to take our children and we want to sit them down and have a conversation with them about whatever's gone on. The way we do this in our house is we try to make things nice and quiet. We'll bring our kiddo to the table, uh, sit her down, have a conversation with her, a very pointed and intentional conversation. We do this because we love our children. I'm sure it's the same reason you do it, because you love your children. And more importantly, we want to help them see rightly about whatever it is that's going on in their life. And if you're not a parent, maybe somebody's done this with you. Maybe you've had a parent do it with you, or maybe you've had a, a teacher, a teacher that you've loved along the way in your education. Maybe they've done this with you. Maybe you've had a coach Uh, who's pulled you aside and done this with you, but they've kind of pulled you out of the mess and noise of whatever's gone on in your life. They've set you down and very intentionally taught you something of infinite value about your life and about the world around you. That is exactly what's happening in today's text. The disciples have trudged all around with Jesus. They followed him all around. But today there's going to be a little tension in our text. And Jesus pulls them aside, sits them down, and very lovingly and intentionally is going to teach them two very important things about what it means to follow the ways of the kingdom of God. Take a moment and pray with me, and then we'll get into our text and see what these ways are. Holy Father, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can know you through it. We ask that you would woo us and draw us in uh, to knowing more about you and that that would, um, Father, that that would stir our consciences and it would win over our hearts and minds for you as we hear your word today. Jesus, be our shepherd and our guide, our example. Holy Spirit, would you minister to our hearts these truths, whatever things we've walked into the room with today, would you let us not just hide them, but would you let us lay them at your feet? Would you let your word speak truth to our hearts about all the things of our life? Open up our eyes and ears to understand and our hearts and minds to absorb and, and be changed. We love you. We trust you. Amen. <clears throat> well, straight away as we come into the text, we find Jesus teaching his disciples about the cross about what's to come. And this is not the first time he's done this. Jesus has done this before. He's told them that he's going to die, that he's going to suffer, that he will rise again. Let's look at verse 32. It says, They did not understand, and they were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand it last time that he talked about it, and they don't understand it this time. And this is going to set the stage a little bit for what we're going to see today, this lack of understanding. For all the following of Jesus that the disciples have done, for how they've been with him the whole time, they're still learning exactly who Jesus is, exactly what he's here for. And when he tells them he's going to die, it really confuses them. All they know is the Messiah, he, Messiah King has actually come. He's now here, and he's going to live for a little while and die. That doesn't seem like a good plan at all. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to them as disciples. And now we're going to see as they journey on, another type of misunderstanding is going to begin to stir and move around in their hearts. Let's look at verse 33 together. It says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So a little chatter begins to develop uh, between our disciples. And as they reach their destination, Jesus essentially says, hey, what were you guys talking about while we were journeying along? What were you guys talking about? Now, whether he heard them talking or he simply knows because he's God, we're going to see uh, here in a little bit that Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about, but he asks them anyway. That's really important as we move into our text today. We can't just uh, move right past this. Jesus is probing and nudging the heart of the disciples. He's drawing them into realizing their behavior and their incorrect way of thinking. And he's doing this so that he can guide them into a correct kingdom way of thinking. Jesus doesn't come in dropping the hammer on them. He gently nudges them with this question, Hey, hey, what were you guys talking about while we were coming along the way? And incidentally, church, that's how God, through the Spirit, works in our hearts as well probing and nudging the dark corners of our hearts, asking us, hey, what were you talking about? Hey, why did you speak to her that way? Hey, why are you disrespecting your employer in this way? Why are you not representing me well in this way? And when the Spirit moves and probes and nudges our hearts like that, it's a mercy. It's a grace, and God wants us to respond to Him. But in our text... There's no response from the disciples. Seems like they kind of know that they've been made, 
Uh, they know exactly what they were talking about. It seems like none of them really want to speak up and tell Jesus and be honest about what they were talking about. And what we're seeing is that right on the heels of Jesus telling them that he's going to die, they begin arguing with one another about who's the greatest. Jesus has his eyes fixed on the cross, but the disciples are thinking about their personal status, about who's going to lead the movement once Jesus is gone. They're still so confused about Jesus. They're still thinking about victory on their own terms. They can't see that this kind of victory is actually going to come through defeat. They aren't getting it. Their understanding is dim. They're focusing on the wrong thing. But it's not just the disciples who very often focus on the wrong things like worldly greatness. It's me. It's probably you too. While I was writing this sermon, I pulled up my internet search engine, which is probably never a good thing to do, and I typed in, who is the greatest? I didn't finish it, and I pressed enter. And what the internet gave back to me were all kinds of articles about Muhammad Ali. Now, if you don't know who that is, he's a very famous boxer. And while I'm, while I'm sure that Muhammad Ali was the greatest boxer who ever lived, it just helped me realize that to establish greatness, you have to have a metric to measure it by. If I want to get any valuable result out of my search engine, I've got to quantify that statement. I've got to ask, who is the greatest boxer? Who is the greatest Formula One driver. Who is the greatest university in the state of Texas? That's Texas A&M, by the way. It's a true statement. Well, it got me wondering. I wonder what the metric was that the disciples were using that day. When they were arguing along the way about who's the greatest, what was the metric? Was it who prayed the best or the most? Was it who followed Jesus the most closely? Maybe it was who brought the most sick people to Jesus? It got me curious about what's the metric that they were using that day. I wonder what it is that you and I use to measure greatness, because we do measure it. We do care about who is number one. Each one of us in this room, in the recesses of our hearts, for us, that question might be postured a little bit differently, but it's there nonetheless. Who is the greatest? And each one of us, we use a different metric to finish that statement. That metric may even change, may change from day to day, may change from moment to moment. Might be who's the greatest mom, who's the greatest dad, might be who's the greatest employer, might be who's the greatest looking. What fills out the search engine in our hearts, moment by moment, day to day? Maybe it's just general. Who's the greatest at being right at everything? Or maybe we're really good Christians and we veil that a little bit. We say, well, I would never ask that, but we actually that question in a little bit of a different way. We tease this question out in our hearts because however we measure greatness, we desire to be at the top of that list. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about generally generally being great or trying to be good at something. As Christians, we all want want to try and strive to be good at the things that we do, but I'm speaking of a desire for greatness as the world poses it to us, where this question seeps in. And we take that metric, whatever that metric might be, and we begin to compare ourselves to everyone around us. We begin to seek a worldly greatness. Because when we do that, most of us struggle with this in two ways. We either want to be at the top of that list, 
And so we sacrifice here and we compromise there and we judge these people here and we uh, hurt these people over here because we have this insatiable appetite to be at the top of that list. And we say, who's the greatest? I'm going to be. That's one way we struggle with it. There's another way we struggle with it where we live in despair because we can't be the greatest. Because when that metric goes into our search engine and the results come back to us, it's not articles about us that we see. It's everyone else around us because we see people better looking than we are, more put together than we are, in better jobs than we're in, in that position that we want to be in at the company, people in better financial positions than we in than we're in. And the stark reality that we're not the greatest comes crashing down on us, and it's hard for us to bear. And so we buckle under the pressure. We fake a smile. It's bitterness, frustration, anger, despair. Who's the greatest? Not me, we answer. And just like the disciples, we've totally missed it. Whatever metric we're using for greatness, whatever we type into the rest of the search engine, it really doesn't matter. And we may think that it does, and the world may tell us that it does, but orienting our hearts and minds around who is the greatest anything has devastating results. Look at our text. What were the disciples doing around this discussion of who is the greatest? Were they having a nice chat? Does Mark say, for on the way they had a civilized discussion about who is the greatest? That's not the text. No, no, no. They were arguing. They were arguing because pursuits of greatness centered around a worldly metric always, always lead to sin. It doesn't matter what greatness you're seeking, sin comes with it, damage comes with it, brokenness comes with it, hurting other people comes with it. Because at the end of the day, a pursuit of worldliness says, me first. Says me first. Says I want to be great and I pursue it and maybe I achieve it and then look at me, I'm great. Or it says I want to be great so I pursue it and I fail and then look at me, I'm worthless. Both of these ways say me first. I'm either great or I'm not. But whichever one it is, my eyes are still fixed on myself. My eyes are still fixed on me first. And look at this church. The disciples were walking along arguing about who's the greatest when the greatest was walking with them the entire time. The God of the universe in flesh, he was eating with them. He was drinking with them. He was walking with them. He was talking with them. He was calling them his, but they were consumed by their own greatness, by me first. They were missing it, and so do we, because Jesus walks with us too. Paul says the same spirit who lives in Christ lives in you and lives in me. We are never alone but it seems that we too can't help but be consumed most of the time by me first. So in his mercy, Jesus is exposing this in the disciples. He's exposing their misunderstanding so he can show them a better way. And to do this, he sits them down, looks them in the eyes, and lovingly tells them the ways of his kingdom. Verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus says, I know what you guys were talking about. 
you were talking about your own greatness. Let me show you how you've got it wrong. Look what Jesus does. He illustrates his point by taking a small child and he holds the child in front of them. He doesn't bring the child up because it's innocent. He doesn't bring the child up because it's dependent. He brings the child up to explode their metric of greatness, to turn a worldly value system upside down. We have to understand that in their context, at the time this was written, that child would have been worthless to anyone except mom and dad. The child couldn't produce anything. The child couldn't help with labor. The child couldn't care for itself. In fact, all that child would do is take, take, take. It would be a horrible inconvenience. It wouldn't be worth your time. But Jesus says, if you want to follow kingdom greatness, if you want to follow my way, you'll take your eyes off of yourself and instead you'll focus on the things which seem to be worthless in the world's eyes but are actually of infinite value in the kingdom. He's saying the worldly value scale doesn't work when you follow me. We're not measuring greatness according to the world. He says we're measuring greatness according to the kingdom. And then John seems to get brave, and he speaks up in verse 38. He says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus responds to this by telling John, you guys should have just let him go. You're still missing it, John. See, the disciples were still confused. They're still looking for a metric. And this time, the metric is following us. John wasn't looking for allegiance or obedience to Jesus. The disciples were looking for this guy's disciple card. They thought the guy had to be just like them. So the question's popping up again. Who's the greatest? Who's number one? John's answer, the disciples' answer, those who follow us. The disciples are still misunderstanding it. Family, when we arrive in heaven and we are standing and worshiping the Lamb, when we are worshiping Jesus Christ, there will be all kinds of believers around us. And they will not be there because they followed us. They will be there because the object of their faith is Jesus Christ. What Jesus is saying here is, there's a metric, John, and it's not you guys. It's not your own greatness. It's not your own ways. It's not whatever you're putting in the search engine. You want a metric of greatness, Jesus says? The metric is me. This is the first lesson in discipleship that Jesus is teaching them. Living the way of God's kingdom is not about me first. It's about Christ first. As Jesus crushes their worldly value system of greatness, he's helping the disciples see that in the kingdom, the metric of greatness is actually Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 35. Jesus tells us what greatness is in the kingdom. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Who does that describe? Let me help us. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly at heart. And by saying that, he says, I am last, I am humble, I am meek. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus will say, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And by saying that, Jesus says, I am a servant of all. You remember what he said? To be first, be last. To be first, be a servant. 
The metric of kingdom greatness really isn't a metric at all. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ himself, the God of the universe, the person who actually is the greatest. And in his greatness, he has come to be last of all, and he's come to be servant of all. He willingly lays down his life, not for people who are greater than him, but for people who are less than him, sinners in need, people like you and people like me who are served by his perfect life and his sacrificial death. Jesus is telling his disciples, the way of the kingdom is the way of my life. The way of the kingdom is not to pursue greatness at all costs, and it's not to sink in despair when we don't get it. The way of the kingdom is to take our eyes off of ourselves and look to Christ, to pursue his greatness and not our own. Because when we do, that disease of me first will begin to wither and die. And we can stop thinking things then like, what can this relationship do for me? Or what can this church do for me? Or how do I compare with this metric I've come up with? How do I compare now against everyone else around me? And instead, we will say, look what Christ has done for me. And focusing on Christ causes us to give of ourselves, to gladly be last, and to serve to serve our spouses, to serve our children, to serve our neighbors, our employers, this church. Then we'll take time to care for those who have nothing to offer us. Then we'll sacrifice our wants and our desires, and instead we'll pursue Christ's wants and Christ's desires. This is what it means to be a disciple, to follow the way of the kingdom, to put Jesus Christ first. But we're not done with our text. What if we don't follow the ways of the kingdom of God? What if we continue to pursue a worldly system of greatness? What if we continue to pursue me first? And it just colors all that we see and do. Christ has another very serious lesson for the disciples. Let's look at verse 42. As we read this verse, I want you to know something uh, right out of the gate, when Jesus says little ones in this passage, he's not talking about children. It's a phrase that Jesus uses several times, and every single time he's referring to the disciples. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where there worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark has purposefully taken these statements from Christ and placed them in this part of the narrative to show us where pursuits of worldly greatness lead, where pursuits of me first lead. It leads to sin and ultimately to a very real eternal judgment. And this is important for us today 
Because in all of our intelligence, in all of our worldly advancement, in our very busy modern lives, it's very easy for us to downplay just how me first we actually are. It's very easy for us to downplay the reality of sin. It's very easy for us to downplay the fact that there are eternal consequences for our actions. In fact, a survey done in 2021 revealed that only 63% of Christians believe in hell. Yet the reality is Jesus talked about hell way more than he did heaven. He talks about hell more than anyone else in Scripture. And listen to this. Every single time Jesus talks about hell, it's as a warning to his disciples. Jesus never uses hell as a tool to condemn people who aren't following him. In this text, God the Spirit's taking time to sit us down, look us in the face, and say, if you're going to follow the king, you must take these things seriously. This is the second lesson in discipleship in our text today, and it's a heavy one. Living in continual pursuit of me first has eternal consequences. Mark is showing us that the me first ways of living bring sin. Not only to us, but they cause others to sin as well. This happens in many ways, but we saw earlier in the text one way that this happens is the disciples arguing with each other. A headstrong pursuit of me first always causes collateral damage, and this is not something Christ will accept. He will not tolerate anyone causing his disciples to stumble into sin. He says it'd be better if they wrap a rock around their neck and go jump into Lake Travis. He's illustrating just how far we should go to keep from sinning. He says, what's causing you to sin? Your eyes? Are you looking at things that you shouldn't be looking at? Your hands? Are you going after things that you shouldn't? Are you stealing? Are you taking your feet? Are they leading you to places? Cut them off. Tear them out. And we know Jesus isn't being literal here, but we must understand the weight of this statement. He's saying if you don't, if you don't cut off the sin in your life, if you continue pursuing this world, then judgment will come. It will come in the form of eternal punishment, and it will come in the form of living out the rest of eternity under the rightful wrath of God. The language Jesus uses to describe this eternal punishment compares it to Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. It's a place outside of Jerusalem. In ancient times, it was a place used for human sacrifices, a very dark, evil, awful place, uh, human sacrifices to a pagan god. In the current time that this is written, that Mark writes this, that location outside Jerusalem is now a dump. So it's where animal carcasses are, and it's where um, there is refuse and waste and fires that burn all the time. It's really a horrid, awful place, and this is the symbolism that Jesus is using to describe eternal punishment. Jesus is telling us about the horrors of hell because contrary to popular belief, he doesn't want us there. He doesn't wish that anyone would be there. And I think when most of us read this, hell sits as an obscurity in our minds. The punishment for turning from Christ and centering our life, our entire life around ourselves, doesn't seem real to us. We easily proclaim that God is good and God is love, and He is, but we conveniently forget that He is also holy and He is also just. And if God is the holiest of beings, and if His justice is the highest in existence, then my sin, which is not 
compared against your sin, it's held against his holiness, then my sin cannot be easily forgiven. My sin cannot be easily washed away. I'd like to take a moment this morning and read you guys something that I think communicates the realities of sin and hell. I think there's probably nothing outside of Scripture which paints a clear picture. In 1741, a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon in Enfield, Connecticut. This sermon would become his most famous work. Some say it's the most famous sermon ever preached. It would serve as a catalyst for the first great awakening, a series of revivals that came in that time period. I encourage you to find and read this sermon in its entirety. I'm not going to do that here. I'll just read a portion to us. And I'm doing this, church family, because I think it communicates to us just how real sin is and just how real God's judgment is. Jonathan Edwards writes, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else to be cast into the fire. He's of pure eyes than to bear have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it's nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you've not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you've not gone to hell since you've sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there's nothing else that's to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. Edwards took hell very seriously. And I think it serves our consciences well to hear his words. Jesus Christ takes hell very seriously. We see it in the text. Jesus Christ takes sin and hell so seriously that he left the halls of heaven, became human, was born as an infant, lived on this earth, suffered, was rejected, and died so that you and I don't end up there. Our sin is mightily offensive to a holy God. Our sin cannot be easily dismissed by a just God. That is why we need a God-sized Savior to rescue us from it. Family, it's good. It's good if the, word of Edwards feel, if the words of Edwards feel heavy on your heart and weighty in your soul. We must run from our sin. We must rightly understand God's holiness and justice. We must rightly grasp the reality of eternal condemnation and live in that space where we know God is good and he's loving, but he's also holy and he's just. And as Edward's words sit heavy on your heart this morning, hear these words also that the Apostle Paul writes to the Roman church. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We have a God sized Savior to rescue us. His name is Jesus. Jesus 
saves. By the mercy and love and grace and holiness and justice of God, Jesus saves us. He saves us from sin. He tells us to turn from the ways of the world and to follow the ways of the kingdom. In his sermon, Edwards will go on to ask his congregation this question, do you long to be born again? And this morning, whether we call Christ our king or not, we must ask ourselves that very question. Do I long to be saved from my ways, from me first, to run from sin and follow Jesus, we cannot set the focus of our hearts upon ourselves. It will cost us eternity. But by setting the focus of our hearts upon the risen Christ, we can be free forever. As we close up this morning, our Lord ends his message here with talk of salt and fire. And it seems a bit confusing and it seems a bit cryptic, but I think it's more simple than that. Certain burnt sacrifices in the Old Testament law would be salted. Salt was representative of the covenant between God and his people. Here in these final verses, Jesus is promising that for those who follow him, their lives will be lived out like sacrifices, like an offering. And as our lives are lived out in that way, they will be refined by fire, by testing, and by trials, and by difficulties, by things that are hard and things that are hard to understand. Being a disciple of Christ is serious business, and we are placed into that refining fire by the hands of Christ so that anything not preserved by his name burns away. And he says this is good because it will move us to be people of peace. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and grasping the weight of sin and hell are part of our refining as disciples of Christ. Neither one of these things are easy to do, but they preserve us. They season us. They're part of our refining, and they're what helps shape our minds towards being a people of peace in a culture of conflict. And being like that makes us more and more like Jesus. And that's exactly where we need to be. In just a moment, we're going to respond to God's word by taking communion together as a church. This very meal we share reminds us that there's only one who's great, and his name is Jesus. He lived so that we might now know kingdom greatness, and he died so that we might realize the reality of sin. As you receive communion this morning, remember it's his body and blood that were lovingly given for us as a gift, a gift that saves us from a very real eternal condemnation so that instead we can spend forever with him, free and looking upon his greatness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you... Pour out upon our hearts whatever we need this morning. Father, if it's peace in our hearts that we need, would you give it to us? If it's conviction in our hearts that we need, would you convict us? Would you lovingly guide us in a way that you know is perfect and holy and good? 
And when you do so, would you draw us closer and closer into a relationship with you? Would you let our eyes rest never upon ourselves, but upon Christ? Upon what we know of him through your word, upon what we see of him through your word. And Holy Spirit, would you come and would you produce fruit in our lives in keeping with those realities? Remind us of your love and grace and mercy and of who we are in you. And help us to run from everything that even barely resembles sin in our life. We trust you. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.